the ancient city of Jerusalem, I guess you'd say just like most of your ancient cities in the world, was a place with a high population density. Because everything had to be squashed inside of the city walls to protect, uh, to protect yourself from invasion. And all of the buildings of the city were, were closely fit together. And all of the streets of the city were narrow, which left very little open space for activities such as gardening. So if you were a, a well-to-do, wealthy individual, it was quite common that you would purchase or rent personal gardening space outside the city walls where you could go for afternoon strolls and get away from the crowd and the noise and, and enjoy the fresh air. These gardens you should have in your mind's eye an enclosed space probably with a door that you would need to enter in by with a key. The particular garden we have in mind here has an olive press inside. Gethsemane is the Hebrew word for olive press, which would have been a stone cavity that was in the earth, large enough for a man to stand in in it. You would go up on the Mount of Olives, you would pick its plentiful fruit, drop that in the, the cavity or in the stone bowl, and then you would crush the olives with your feet, or more commonly, a, a stone wheel would roll over the olives and, and smash them. The precious oil, the olive oil, which was used for a multitude of different reasons, would be collected as it, as it uh, was found along the edges of the, of the olive press. So some wealthy person has probably given Jesus access to their garden. In fact, uh, it might be the same wealthy person who gave him access to the upper room just a few hours prior. But someone has led Jesus into their garden, and he takes eight of his disciples, he, he puts them, stations them as lookouts, possibly, at the, at the front of the enclosure. He takes his three closest friends deeper into the garden and there we read about it in Mark chapter 14 verse 27 there Jesus Christ fights the the loneliest battle that has ever been waged Jesus said to them quoting Zechariah 13 you will all fall away for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell onto the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, 
Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, prayed saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by, and we're told in other gospel accounts it was Peter, he drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against uh, have you come out as against a robber or as a common against a common criminal with swords and clubs to capture me day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me but let the scriptures be f- fulfilled and they all left him and fled and a young man some people suggest that this is mark a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I have a very sophisticated thesis this morning for the sermon, and the, the thesis is this. Jesus Christ knows what it feels like to be desperately lonely. And because of that, Jesus Christ is able to comfort us and deal gently with us when we are crushed in spirit. I read that thesis out loud yesterday on uh, Saturday morning, and I wondered, does that sound like overly therapeutic? Um, Because I knew that there would probably be some people in the room this morning that that would sound just way too soft and, and mushy. Like, is that really the best thing that you can come up with from the Garden of Gethsemane. And then I realized, while, while such a thesis may not appeal to everybody, it's one of the lessons the Bible itself draws from this episode in Jesus' life. So you read about it in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, Thus he can deal gently with us, since he himself is beset with weakness. This terribly, terribly afraid and dreadfully alone 
and brokenhearted man, um, that is why he can care for people whose marriages are devoid of connection and compassion, for people whose kids are making destructive choices that are absolutely breaking their parents' hearts, for for people who have aging parents with a, a whole assortment of complex needs and struggles, or for people just everyday, run-of-the-mill people who suffer from abject loneliness. So if that, if the Garden of Gethsemane and that message sounds too therapeutic for you this morning, um, well, I guess the Bible can be criticized for, uh, for something such as that. What I really want this episode in Jesus' life to function as is if we could turn it into, uh, for lack of a better term, prayer therapy. I am a, a very big believer in praying passages of Scripture back to God. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're, you're kind of new to Christianity, prayer for us is rather basic. It is an honest and familiar communication with God. Um, like any good conversation, you, you listen to the other person and then you speak back. Well, in, in our theology of how God works, God speaks to us in the scriptures and then we pay close attention to those words. We think about it, we take it in and, and then we respond appropriately. Well, this is one of the best places in all of the Bible to take it in and to listen and, and then to to respond like when you are in a place of of deepest darkness i wonder if you ever thought of the garden of gethsemane as as the place to go and pray so let me try to illustrate this i will i'll do so kind of drawing your attention to different parts of the passage first but as i said jesus christ he stations eight of the disciples at the entrance of the garden. He takes his three closer in. It says that then he goes a little further, and he, verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed. Now, notice it does not say that he, he knelt to the ground, but rather the clear picture is that he's carrying a, a weight great enough to, to make him literally literally stagger under, under it and to fall onto the ground and, in, and to say these words, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. And so what you're supposed to do is you listen to, to it and you translate it. You take it out of the, the very familiar vernacular that you, you probably, if you've been with the Bible for a while, are, are accustomed to, you translate this. What is Jesus saying here? My soul is very sorrowful to death. He's saying that I am so sad right now that death feels like a relief to me. It, it almost seems like it's better to die than to go on living for another 24 hours. Some people have, have provocatively described this as Jesus' death wish. Um, I, I don't think that that's exactly what he's, he's saying. Uh, it's interesting that we would get this word from Jesus uh, at the end of last week, isn't it? 
I mean, Jesus isn't threatening suicide here, but he's certainly, he's somewhere on, located on the emotional spectrum that leads a person down the road to premature death. I am so sad right now that death sounds like a relief to me. And this is how the Son of God felt. How is it even possible for, for God the Son to feel this way? The eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent nature of God who doesn't get overwhelmed by anything, how can he get to the point where, where he is, is coming unraveled at the seams? So what you do as a listener is you turn that back to God in prayer you say, Lord Jesus Christ, I am at a place of such darkness right now that I too feel a sadness that makes death sound like a relief to me. And so come and be merciful to me right now. You of all the people who have ever lived can understand. For Gethsemane uniquely qualified you to understand what is going on inside of my heart right now. If anybody is able to sympathize with me, it is you. And so I I lay that before you and I say, Lord, have mercy. Deal gently. Lord, deal gently with me. And the author of Hebrews seems to indicate that he will. Second example of this. Notice that Jesus prays the same prayer three times, three times in a row. Very simple prayer. Take this cup away. Take this cup away. Take this cup away. What was the cup? The cup was, was the cup of, of suffering. We'll go into that a little bit more in, in a second. But he says, Abba, Abba, take this cup away, which is the Aramaic word for father. Uh, scholars who study ancient Jewish literature tell us that this is the very first known incident, the, the very first time they have ever found a Jew using the word Abba to address God in that way. There are a number of places scattered throughout the ancient literature where a person is praying and they use a more formal word for father in their own Aramaic dialect, but never before in, in all of what we can determine has anyone dared use this language of affection and intimacy to address God. So what Mark is giving us is a picture of a child who is begging his dad to make things better. And they don't get any better. <laughs> No sooner does Jesus Christ pray three times than his three closest friends fall asleep on him. Then another one of his closest friends comes and betrays him with a kiss, no less. Do you ever, have you ever looked at the passage and wondered why Judas a kiss? Why the subterfuge, the smoke and mirrors? The answer, I think, is because it was dark. I mean, there are no streetlights. How do you, if you're the betrayer, get close enough to make out the, the, the distinctions of the face without being suspected that, that you're there for some, for some reason? It's a kiss that, that allows you to get close. I can imagine Judas 
surveying the, the different faces. And when he finally comes to the one, he, he, he opens his arms up. He says, Rabbi, and he, and he kisses him. Do you, do you see what's happening here? God the Son, the Son of God, begs his, his Abba, his Father, in the most affectionate language that has ever been used in the history of Jewish prayer, begs him to please make things better. And, and then all of his disciples flee. And then even this unnamed anonymous follower, sympathizer, runs away naked. So again, if you are a good listener and you've been actively listening to the scriptures, you turn that back to God in prayer and you say something like this, Lord Jesus, you know how I have been begging our Heavenly Father for a long while to do something that I desperately desire. And you know how disillusioning, how how disheartening it can be to pray and pray. And, and, uh, and things go from not from, from from better to worse they 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 don't improve i don't understand how how i can beg the father for something only to continue to receive no for for an answer um, but you understand and so i come to you and ask you that you would have mercy on me and help me not to become bitter and cynical and lose hope but be merciful to me and deal gently with me and the author of hebrews suggest that he will. Third example. Throughout the, the Bible and the Old Testament, this, this metaphor for the cup, it's used on a number of occasions. I won't go through and list all of the, the references. But it is used to describe divine wrath. Divine wrath. Divine judgment take take the divine judgment away from me take the divine judgment away from me is there any other way to save your people that doesn't involve me drinking the cup is there any other sacrifice that could be offered you think back to the Old Testament and some of the great stories, there was precedent for this such this type of thing. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham didn't want his son Isaac to have to drink the cup. He, he prayed, and at the very last moment, against all odds, Isaac was spared. There was, there was precedent for this kind of prayer and this kind of begging. Jesus begs the Father to, to carry on the mission some other way. But as Tim Keller says, though he begs the Father to carry on the mission some other way, he doesn't ask the Father to abandon the mission altogether. Um, And in fact, what he does is he says, I will subordinate my desires to your desires. So my immediate desire, what I feel more pregnantly, more powerfully than anything else in the entire world, I will... Submit that, subordinate that to your will be done. And as horrible as the cup will be, if, if there is no other way for you to rescue your people, um, he, he's saying, no matter how I feel right now, dot, 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 
No matter how I feel, like if we could just get in the habit of, of praying that way, no matter how I feel, if this is what needs to be done, then I will be the lamb. I think this is where it gets really interesting because a number of people have suggested a very, what I think is a very plausible theory to explain the behavior of Judas. They say that Judas's betrayal of Jesus was a failed setup. Judas, according to this theory, was kind of a disenchanted Jewish, nas- uh, Jewish nationalist who betrayed Jesus when he saw that Jesus wasn't going to be the revolutionary figure who would, overthrow, who would overthrow Rome. But what Judas really wanted, his desire was, was sort of to put Jesus in a corner so that he had to fight. He wanted to force Jesus into a position if he could convince the temple and the Roman authorities to confront Jesus directly and corner him, then Jesus would be forced into battle. And and Jesus would become what Judas was always hoping that he would be, this uh, Jesus the revolutionary. And so according to Judas's line of thinking, the revolution would begin with the battle of Gethsemane. You say, well, that's a preposterous theory. No, I mean... Who, who could come up with that? It was a good enough trap to get Peter to bite. Because Peter becomes the revolutionary when he draws his sword and he slashes off the ear of the high priest's servant. Make no mistake about it. When, when Peter was slashing, it was not to cut off an ear. <laughs> like That was not his intent. He was looking to cut off a head. Um, But Jesus Christ said, I will be a lamb. And he stays passive as ever. If you know how the story goes on, Judas feels tremendous remorse. Once this plan backfires, he realizes what a terrible miscalculation he has made. He, He expected there would be a fight, and he didn't realize that lambs don't fight. Lambs are led away to the slaughter like sheep to the slaughter. Lambs go where their master leads them. Lambs drink from the trough or the cup which their master gives them. And if if it is the will of God that I drink this cup, thy will be done. Why is Jesus Christ so afraid. Martin Luther famously said that no man ever feared death quite like this man. Um, Why was he so afraid? Was he afraid to to die at the age of 37? Um, When you go through, uh, you make your list of goals and achievements by age, by date. You know, you say, by 22, I want to have graduated from college. By 25, I want to have gotten a a great job, any job (laughs) in this economy. Uh, By 27, I want to be married. By 30, I want to have moved out of my parents' house. (laughs) Yeah. By 40, I want to be dead. Who says that? Death by crucifixion was was, was a terrible way to die. You would asphyxiate 
you would, um, I mean, it could be bad enough you'd be on the, the tree, the cross, a cross for days. Birds would come and start to pick at your flesh. But he got the feeling that um, there's got to be something more here. Why is it that Jesus Christ doesn't die with more composure than even some of his later disciples do? So he goes, you, you go 60 years later and Polycarp, bishop of the church of Smyrna, has been apprehended by the Roman authorities and told that he needs to recant his faith or be burned at the stake. He says, we'll give you one last chance to, to renounce your faith. And someone in church history records Polycarp's last words. He says, the fire you threaten with burns for an hour and is quenched after a little while. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. Why do you delay? Come do what you will. You hear the, that kind of talk and you think, that's bravado. Where is Jesus talking like that? I mean, even somebody like Socrates, you know, an unbeliever, is, is telling his friends on the, the day that he has to drink the hemlock and they're uh, crying and, you know, blubbery in their tears. He says, buck up. I'm, I'm going to go on to a, a, a better life. Why does Jesus now shrink back? And you get the sense it, it is because something worse than death is about to happen. And we already alluded to it earlier when we talked about the cup. He is going to drink the cup of divine wrath. He knew that his death would carry him into the full horror of darkness and God-forsakenness. He knew that he would face the worst, the worst of it. He who is the innocent, who, who did nothing, would be guilty for everything. You know, early, I asked Kelly to pray earlier in the service to, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq. I mean, what a mess. You have uh, this jihadist group that is conquering and butchering its way over large swaths of Iraq and Syria. You have civilians who are being killed in massive numbers in the in the Israel-Gaza conflict. It seems like Malaysian airlines are falling out of the sky. Uh, airlines are falling out of the sky on a monthly basis. Uh, people are falling down dead in West Africa, um, fallen prey to Ebola. Uh, it can create just this burgeoning sense of hopelessness. And they've actually done studies if, if you watch too much news, while it, it does not create PTSD in you, it does change in some way. It affects the neural pathways where, where you be gradually begin to see the world as a darker and darker place, and it inhibits you from seeing or from feeling any optimism. It cripples, they say, it cripples your ability to hope. It's my job to remind you that there are two great gardens in the Bible. Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. And they really serve as the bookends of the, the whole picture of salvation. In the first garden, the first Adam is tempted and disobeys 
the will of God. And the second garden, the second Adam, is even more fiercely assaulted by, by the powers of evil. evil. He wages this, this, the loneliest, most terrifying battle ever. And he wins. I'm here to remind you that he wins. And that has to make us people of hope. Jesus Christ has already faced the worst the devil could throw at him. He has faced it and he has conquered, thereby guaranteeing that one day we will conquer and the forces of good will conquer and that there will be a happily ever after at the end of the story. So we're people of hope. Once you just take in the full gamut of garden to garden, of Adam to Adam, of of tempted and, and fallen to conquer and victor. You take in all of that and then you turn it back into prayer. So let's do that. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when, when you needed human fellowship more than any other time in your life, Uh, Everybody left you. And when you prayed for the cup to be taken away, and immediately you were presented with an opportunity to to take a sword and reject a cup. Um, When you knew that you would be cut off from the Father, and you knew that you would be cursed, and still you went like a lamb to the slaughter, what a demonstration of of your love. Uh, it, It shows us How great is your love for mankind? There is nobody that we we would rather follow than you. There's no one more worthy of our praise and our love and and our adoration than you. And it is in this firm belief that you conquered the, the, the forces of evil that today we understand ourselves to be people of hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so it is on you, the solid rock that we stand, uh, gratefully remembering today the Garden of Gethsemane. Amen.